Welcome to the Optionality Game, a conversation with successful leaders about evaluating your options, taking the right risks, and creating your own luck. I'm your co-host, Cooper Schoenthaler. I'm your other co-host, Alston Thomas. This podcast is our much-needed exploration into the options that people choose, the choices they regret, and most importantly, whether they're satisfied with how it all turned out. Lessons are best conveyed by stories, and we hope to explore the career-defining moments of business leaders and change the way you think about your decisions. So welcome to the Optionality Game. Welcome to the Optionality Game podcast. Our guest today is Nick Adams. Nick was previously an operator of a few software companies that have had successful exits, but more recently, he is the co-founder and managing partner over at Differential Ventures. Differential is a New York City-based venture capital fund, and it makes seed investments in mostly AI and data science ventures. So on this special edition of the optionality game, Alfson and I are taking a slightly different take. Instead of learning about the journey of a successful business person and getting deep into their background, we're going deeper into Nick's opinions on the current and future state of artificial intelligence. We discuss the definition of AI, Nick's pretty significant skepticism around AI, the effect of AI on unemployment and the growing need for education of the workforce and re-education, the limits of automating jobs such as doctors and lawyers, And finally, the existential risk associated with AI. We were absolutely delighted to get Nick on this podcast, and we loved hearing his unique take on the future of AI and just really all things AI. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And as always, please reach out to Alfson or myself with any feedback or suggestions. With that being said, enjoy the show. Thanks for coming on today, Nick. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So to kick off this conversation, we'd love to learn a little bit about your background and what ultimately drew you to investing in AI. Yeah, sure. So I, um, you know, I came from the startup world. Uh, I grew up in Boston, first of all, uh, did my undergrad at, at Brandeis, played baseball there, um, was, uh, was going to be a, a lawyer, learned very quickly after a year of working full-time uh, in a law firm that wasn't going to be for me. Mercifully got hired into startup world um, and kind of hit the ground running in sales, marketing, product management type roles over, over about 12 or 13 years in a couple of different companies that, that had some uh, uh, really interesting outcomes to them. And most of them were really at the, the last iteration of data, machine learning, um, AI type, type, of, um, type of solutions. And just saw that we were at kind of an interesting inflection point around what was really possible with technology and computing power and felt that um, we did a good job of selling the last iteration of of technology and data-oriented solutions, but was really, really lacking in terms of even what's possible today from a technology perspective. So um, along the line, I went went back to school a couple of times. I did did my MBA at Northeastern, uh, then did a master's in global finance, uh, split my time between NYU and Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and had the chance to join a small fund here in New York called Flatiron Investors um, back in 2016. And um, knew it wasn't really the right uh, long-term fit for me as a second uh, GP there with them, but had a great experience and just really built the foundation and, and the 
uh, the thesis behind Differential Ventures, which was really to build off of what uh, I had done personally in the last uh, iteration of AI machine learning technology, um, which was sell a lot of uh, data collection and data analysis type solutions. And what my partner David had had done in his previous life, which was really deep uh, technical experience be behind uh, data science, machine learning, and AI. He was a PhD in computer science from Stanford and was really one of the main architects behind Renaissance Technologies and uh, the most successful quantitative hedge fund of all time. So his my, my product manager level of, of uh, expertise was helpful, but what I really want to do is be a truly uh, deep tech uh, oriented AI machine learning fund. And David's experience was kind of the perfect pairing for me um, to go out and start this fund. So that was the background to how we got here. Um, so we're, you know, uh, definitely saw firsthand the kind of band-aids and bubble gum we use on the back end of our solutions back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And now just see the potential for how much more we can actually do with real, real AI. Uh, it's kind of the, uh, you know, cliche term I'll use now. Before diving deeper into AI, would you give us a high level of what exactly you consider artificial intelligence to be? And maybe some basic examples, especially related to the real AI that you just referenced? Yeah, it's a great point. The term AI, AI is so bastardized. Um, I actually try not to use it as much as possible. I tend to say we're data-oriented solutions, data science-oriented solutions, machine learning to some extent, um, but AI sometimes just more, more relatable and buzzwordy uh, to, to use. Um, to be honest, we're kind of AI skeptics. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're probably not going to be on the bleeding edge of thinking that um, machines are taking over the world or cars are going to be flying around totally autonomously, uh, autonomously anytime soon. Uh, AI, um, you know, true AI um, that's capable of, of learning on its own and um, managing the super outlier edge cases that are required for something like uh, autonomous vehicles, which I feel like is the, the poster child for real AI is still quite a ways off in our, in our opinion, uh, if, if ever. Um, so we're actually much more of the uh, mindset that there's still an awful lot that can be done just with pure, you know, what a lot of people would call picks and shovels of, of machine learning and, and data science infrastructure um, that's really lacking today. I think companies um, in general have done a good job of, of the collection uh, part of data. And some organizations like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix of the world have done an amazing job of, you know, going, you know, kind of distance of what can be done with machine learning and AI today. But there's a big gap um, kind of between that data collection and then where, where the market leaders are today that has huge potential for startups to really um, bring a lot of uh, companies into the modern era of data analysis. So for, for us, it's less so like, you know, true AI robots and, and flying cars, um, and much more so the infrastructure behind how do you actually make um, data science specific tools and enable real data science and machine learning. Um, you know, we're, we're B2B uh, investors, we don't do much on the consumer side of things. So I, I tend to think of, of investing uh, in the market um, in the enterprise or B2B sense. Um, so what can we actually do to enable companies to just become better at, at performing data science in their organization to get beyond that data collection and maybe initial data analysis to ensure really high quality uh, algorithm creation and, and output um, of, of um, you know, the data that goes into these algorithms. As my partner, David says, uh, and I'm, I'm gonna steal his term, you know, 
AI is usually called AI until it works, and then it's called an algorithm. Um, so we've we've definitely seen that quite a bit in terms of just how the how the market plays out. How has the current AI venture capital environment changed in the last five years? How does it compare to five years ago? And how do you think it'll change over the next five years? I'm curious about how you are maybe less optimistic than other AI investors. I would say at the high level, a couple of things have happened. And this tends to happen with, with groundbreaking new technology. Um, take you know, cryptocurrency, for example. Cryptocurrency and the use case, the you know, vertical use case behind it is so massive that it, it actually leapfrogged over a lot of the infrastructural issues underlying you know, blockchain technology and, and all the other issues that come with actually, you know, pushing a crypto transaction through, right? So we, we tend to, uh, similar uh, to, to the, the crypto market, I think a lot of applied AI, vertically applied AI use cases um, that have real business value um, jumped ahead of all the really boring stuff uh, behind the scenes that make the output of these algorithms meaningful and um, you know unbiased and uh, repeatable. So um, I think the last five years of AI was really focused on you know much more of um, first of all kind of applied AI use cases. How do we how do we facilitate the automation of probably simple business and, and human transactions through machine learning, through data science, through some simple you know um, uh, algorithmic coding. And then um, some really broad, just, you know, the, the big tech companies all have their own kind of very broad, horizontal AI machine learning uh, platforms, I think are great for getting up and running and experimenting with AI machine learning. But for companies that are truly going to be AI first, data first, you really have to build your own algorithms with your own data sets and, and train them appropriately to make them work and, and um, uh, be effective uh, over the long run. So I think what we're going to see is, um, you know, a lot more of um, creating, monitoring, uh, and explaining uh, of of algorithms and and data sets to avoid kind of the the poisoning of of uh, algorithms and of data to ensure that the outputs are actually still quality and and not um, uh, not not biased by by what information goes into them. Uh, we've seen this in, in the hiring world, for example, where you can create a a, a very racist algorithm <laughs> or a very sexist algorithm or an ageist algorithm based on the types of uh, data sets you use to train your alg algorithms. Um, the, the, the data labelers um, can actually be inherently uh, uh, racist, sexist, uh, ageist uh, on their own, if not chosen carefully. And then ultimately that poisons the algorithm uh, sort of right from, right from the beginning. So I think we're going to see a lot more of, um, you know, careful, uh, explainable uh, AI that you can stand behind and know the outputs are going to be good. And then um, secondly, I think that the AI use cases, vertically applied AI use cases will, will persist. Uh, but I think we're also going to see a lot more adoption of data science specific platforms, especially around natural language processing and unstructured data um, to really help Again, my partner, David, cringes whenever I say this, but help data scientists data science better uh, throughout the organization because there just haven't been that many truly data science and machine learning specific tools. There's been a lot of existing software, you know, classic code and compute platforms that have been repurposed for, uh, for data scientists and for, for data engineers. And it just doesn't really work. Uh, so we're starting to see a lot more of like true AI data science uh, platforms emerge and um, 
make the overall process much more sustainable and, and accurate, actually. I think Oculus is a really good example of one of those companies that is tackling an industry which is extremely manual and, and automating it while using kind of this data-driven process. Um, what was your rationale and, and kind of thesis when you first looked at it to, um, for, for you all to invest so early on? So Oculus in the business of I would argue that the boring business of data extraction, uh, validation, and, and analysis largely for the underwriting process. So where they um, started out was just doing data processing for like law firms, accounting firms, and they built a pretty good little business that was losing money on every single transaction, uh, quite honestly. And um, over time, they eventually landed in the world of fintech lenders and alternative lenders, which... Um, you know, our hyper-competitive market, able to move uh, a lot faster than your classic banks, um, uh, your classic lenders and financial service institutions are, are less regulated. Um, so they can take a little bit more liberty around how they lend, who they lend to, how they risk adjust for, for their decisioning purposes. And because they're so competitive with all the alternative lenders and fintechs out there, their um, response rates and turnaround rates have to be remarkably fast and, and accurate. And what Oculus just nailed, both from a technology and from a process perspective, was how do you get um, core financial information about a company or a person who's applying for a loan, extract that data um, from a slew of different formats, ranging from Excel files to PDFs to, you know, written on the back of a, a piece of paper and, and scanned in. Um, so tons of outlier exceptions from the, you know, kind of the Plaid and Yodely, you know, Direct Connect uh, uh, platforms of the world. And normalize that data because every company uses slightly different verbiage, even though they're all, um, you know, under pretty consistent um, accounting standards and get that data back to the lender as fast, as clean as possible so that they can make a decision in a matter of, of minutes sometimes. So um, Oculus did that in a really elegant way where they can turn around pretty much any type of financial document at this point with 99% plus accuracy in, in a matter of a few minutes when, when needed, um, which has enabled a number of fintechs um, and, and lenders ranging from PayPal to Blue Vine and, and others to um, just be more competitive in the market and, and um, you know, outsource this not really value adding um, portion of their, of their solution. And on the back end, because of all the data they have uh, from, you know, dozens, probably close to a hundred alternative lenders now and, and now mortgage uh, processors, um, the data they have across multiple lenders and, and uh, applicants helps to prevent a huge amount of fraud and gives just a lot of great analytic, uh, analytical data uh, behind lending and, and decisioning. So um, there's products that have been built on top of the overall just data extraction um, uh, kind of transaction by transaction uh, product that Oculus started with. So um, my VC answer for what I loved about Oculus and, and what we look for when we invest in vertically applied AI solutions, which I would, I would consider uh, those guys, is A, they are adding value on a transaction by transaction basis. So in their case, turnaround time, speed, accuracy is a huge value add to their customers. 
And at the same time, they're amassing a really unique proprietary data set that would be extraordinarily hard to replicate that has exponential value on its own uh, on the back end, you know, today in the form of, of, of fraud prevention and, and analytics. My uh, other kind of behind the scenes answer to that is uh, when I was with Rage Frameworks uh, in Boston, um, I, I helped run a very similar type of business uh, for them. We had big customers like, like American Express. When I met Oculus in 2017, they were so much better than I was at running that business um, that I spent like six months just poking into their numbers, trying to figure out if they were if they were fudging, you know, fudging the numbers or you know, pulling the wool over my eyes, and found out they were just that damn good at it, and knew we had to invest. <laughs> so that that's the true story of of how I was uh, kind of familiar with and comfortable with Oculus in the, in the early days without uh, you know, without a ton of other believers in, in the market yet that this could, you know, really be a big company. What are some of the coolest applications of AI that you've seen recently? I am a complete geek about how our brains work. And I spend all day, every day talking with people exponentially smarter than I am in their areas of, of expertise. Um, so Anything and everything I can do around improving my memory uh, and recall um, and uh, just have that at my fingertips when I most need it is super interesting to me. I think the most important, impactful book I ever read in my life was Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is one of those books of like, there are a lot of principles and concepts there that I sort of inherently knew or had vaguely studied in the past. Um, but it just clarified things at such a granular level that it, it made me a, you know, such a better investor, thinker, um, and honestly, probably a better friend and, and family member too, to know when my brain is, is thinking rationally and, and statistically and mathematically versus when it's thinking uh, emotionally and with, with my own biases applied to it. Uh, my, my, my goal as an investor and as a, as a person is not to pretend like I don't have biases that are formed from my own experience, my own upbringing, my own, you know, surroundings, but to be aware of them and to acknowledge them and, and figure out how to mitigate them as much as possible. And that really started with reading that book and, and just helping myself slow down and think more about why I'm making a reaction or having a reaction or making a decision in the way that I am. So uh, oh, it's a long way of saying that I'm super interested in anything that can help us recall, uh, you know, capture, uh, organize and, and recall our um, thoughts uh, more efficiently and effectively. We have something um, along those lines in our, in our portfolio uh, in differential in, in our, our first fund, a company called Personal AI um, that I think has a really interesting model. Frankly, their, their vision for their product even exceeds what, what I necessarily want for myself. Um, but the vision is so great that you have to support it. And if it comes up short and lands at a really great uh, memory and, and recall application, I'll be thrilled. But their vision is that we have digital replicas of ourselves that you know, persist beyond our uh, natural existence here on, on this planet, which... I'm not sure anybody in my friend or family base is ready for, um, but uh, you know, <laughs> I think it's uh, pretty compelling for for some people. So that that's my number one thing. You know, you can see the dancing robots and all the other cool stuff, but uh, you know, I'm I'm all about our brains and how we recall things. And 
you know, another thing we're, we're looking at a lot is just hiring how you better use technology to de-bias, um, you know, our, our own um, interviewing and, and hiring um, processes and, and thought processes individuals too. Eventually, there will probably be an AI-focused company that's worth over a trillion dollars. What do you think that company is going to look like or specialize in? That is a great question. I would argue that uh, Apple and, and Microsoft are are uh, heading in that direction pretty pretty quickly. Um, I do think that if there's going to be a new upstart that um, gets that trillion dollar valuation, it is going to be a use case so um, ubiquitous as our memory and our thoughts and our recall, something that literally happens, you know, uh, day in day out helps us um, become more aware of our conscious conscience and subconscious um, in, in ways that are, um, you know, hopefully beneficial um, for how we learn, how we think um, and how, uh, how things get done. Um, and it will most likely be uh, something that's embedded in, uh, in devices that we already own um, or, or we'll have, uh, you know, in our, in our pockets or uh, implanted in our, in our bodies or, or elsewhere uh, in the not too distant future from, you know, probably one of those companies I mentioned before. So one of Differential's biggest focus, like we've talked about, is to capitalize on exponential data growth and um, all, all, all this data emerging. But, and we've talked about a lot of the opportunities, but what do you think are some of the biggest risks of all of this data growth? My, my biggest concern and, and fear is um, uh, unemployment and the effect this will have on, on the labor force. Um, I've been you know, saying this for a few years, and I think we are scarily close to, um, uh, you know, a bit of a crisis. Um, the technology for a lot of really simple, um, repetitive work tasks still traditionally done by humans. Um, that technology is there. It's ready. It's being deployed. We, we see it when we walk in McDonald's or, um, Walmart or, or anywhere. Um, it's, it's there when we call customer service. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely out there and ready to go and being deployed. And, um, you know, the, the U S in particular had pretty massive tax cuts to incentivize companies. Um, you know, I think it was framed up to, to build more plants and warehouses and, and things like that, but, you know, it's really being used to deploy AI and, and machine learning technology that look is, going to create lots of new jobs. Don't get me wrong. Like there are going to be great new jobs. I think that, uh, uh, you know, AI machine learning solutions are going to help humans do their jobs better. Um, but it's also going to cause a lot of change. There will be jobs that won't exist anymore uh, in the not too distant future. Um, we've not, not the first time we've seen this. You can, you can take a walk through Detroit and take a walk through West Virginia and see industries that we thought would be around forever that have been, been disrupted. Um, and you know, our, our country for as great a job as it does is creating these, you know, pretty awesome, you know, high paying new jobs that will, will exist in machine learning and data engineering and everything else is really bad at, at repurposing and, and training people who have valuable skill sets into other parts of the labor force where we really need people. 
I mean, I, I worked in the energy world for for a long time with Opower and and with Converge, and and we saw it there where you have you know this this unemployed labor force looking for for more work, um, you know, from coal and and, and oil and and um, you know to some extent gas, um, and then you have this whole energy efficient and and uh, you know clean energy movement of like the the retraining effort that it would take to get these people to become useful and and um, employable in a clean energy movement um, is not that big, <laughs> and it can be done with technology. It can be done with with some you know government intervention. We just need a better way to get all these people together, um, and you know avoid some of these issues. And I'm I'm concerned that the wave of AI machine learning adoption will come unbelievably fast and put a lot of people out of work very quickly without the proper infrastructure in place to retrain them and get them deployed into places where they'd be super valuable. So I, I love what's, you know, there's a bunch of companies out there, startups, even like Lambda School that are helping people, you know, learn how to code. And um, I love that stuff. Uh, and I'd love to see more of it kind of in, in the, you know, uh, in the trades and, and in the energy sector and in other places. Um, so that's my fear and and hope for uh for the next you know 10 to 15 years i would say so i have two questions to focus in on that topic um and the first one is going to be what do you think that the limit of job automation is because you know of course we're going to automate away taxi drivers or um you know cashiers but we're getting to the point where it's looking like we might automate away maybe lawyers and doctors what do you think that limit is and will we always have human doctors or will AI replace even those most human professions? I think for most of these, I think we're extremely far, far away uh, off uh, from, from having, you know, truly automated, highly skilled positions, um, you know, replaced, replaced by AI. Um, uh, you know, AI machine learning today is kind of ready for, um, I would say more, you know, repetitive, um, simple task, but everything else is still very much um, assisting the, the professionals that are in that space. So, look, I think I think we'll we'll still have lawyers. Um, I think we'll probably have fewer paralegals and and file clerks and and uh, you know other types of supporting functions. But we're always going to have lawyers, and we'll probably have more lawyers actually. Um, but they'll they'll have more tools at their disposal. The same with doctors. I mean, you know, we don't do a whole lot of investing in, in healthcare um, as much as I would love to, actually, um, because the opportunities there are huge and, and they're they're evolving unbelievably quickly now. Um, the reason we haven't gotten there is because it's it's such a complicated and regulated market and fragmented buying process and, and everything else. Um, that the, the big companies, you know, the, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world have uh, IBM um, are just better suited for kind of, you know, taking the lead in those spaces. Uh, and they have been for a long time. They've invested a lot there and you're, you're seeing that, um, you know, really start to emerge and how doctors operate, how they communicate with us and so forth. So I think we'll still have mostly, um, you know, skilled positions in, in, uh, in our existence and probably even more so in, in abundance, just hopefully more, more efficient with less um, administrative overhead um, costs with the overall experience of working with your lawyer or working with your doctor. Well, that leads me into my second question, which is 
you mentioned that maybe more lawyers would be around. And throughout history, this concept of structural unemployment, like the horse buggy drivers that need to learn how to drive, you know, it's it's a rolling process and that happens over time. And typically technologies create more jobs than they than they destroy. That's just a you know concept through throughout history. So do you believe that AI is going to create more jobs than it will destroy? And if yes, what do you think those jobs will look like? And if no, what do you think are some possible uh, solutions to a society with far fewer jobs in it? I, do, I actually do think AI will create more jobs than it destroys, um, not, not to take away from the jobs that will be destroyed and, and the people behind those jobs. Um, we, we always talk about this as a, as a you know, a positive and, and, uh, there are real people who feel the negative impact of it. Um, but no, I, I, I think everything from just pure engineering, um, you know, the, the, the software development, the data training, the monitoring, the, um, the professional services and, and, um, the ethics behind, uh, AI, um, will, create an abundance of, of new, you know, quote unquote, high, high skilled, you know, white collar type, type jobs. Um, and then beyond that, I think we will inherently better enable um, more of kind of the customer facing roles um, in, in society. And, and I, I, I use customer facing really loosely. I think, um, AI machine learning tools will help lawyers do their job more efficiently. Lawyers are, their job is customer service. Um, doctors, you know, a lot of their job is, is customer service. Um, salespeople and, and um, financial analysts who um, can, can tell this, understand the data and tell the story behind it will be in huge demand. Um, the, the pure data crunchers that, that look at Excel spreadsheets all day. I mean, we, we've you know, been seeing those jobs decline uh, over time uh, and eventually it will go down to a, a minimum. But anybody who can understand the data and make the data come to life in an exciting way, have a, have a really, really bright future in my opinion. Yeah, that, that point about customer service is really interesting because people say that AI is really not going to truly understand customer behavior. That's why the best hedge fund managers in the world will never be out of a job because they're taking so many different forms of, of data themselves and then applying it to how they think the world is going to change. Do you, do you think AI will get to a point where, where it can understand human, human behavior to that level? I don't. I think we, we will... Um increasingly see actual AI of algorithms taking outputs and, and data and, and making new uh, inferences and, and decisions uh, on, on their own. Um, but we are really early on in that process, I'm really early on. To, to say that it's ready for prime time and, and any um, useful uh, applications is, is pretty premature. So, and honestly, you know, these deep neural networks and, and machine learning uh, algorithms are, are, are truly, truly com too complex for, for what you actually need uh, for most, most functions. 
in, in a hedge fund, you know, I mean, my partner, David worked for most successful hedge fund ever. And, um, you know, I, I would argue that, um, you know, deep neural networks really aren't the core of, of what they're doing to be successful. Um, there's some, you know, much simpler, uh, math, honestly, just algorithms that can be done with, um, better data and, and better data science processes, um, to achieve really great results. Um, so I do think that AI for AI's sake isn't worth it because there is Andreessen Horowitz kind of famously or infamously wrote about um, data-oriented, data-driven solutions and um, the, the kind of gross margin challenge uh, facing these companies because of the amount of data and, and labeling and training and retraining and everything else that, that goes into um, uh, you know, AI machine learning. And it, it's true. I mean, I, I think, and we're investing in a lot of solutions, I think will help automate a lot of that and ensure that... Um, you have an appropriate amount of data and you're, you're analyzing it the right way and you're um, much more efficient and effective in, in how you monitor the algorithms and adjust them um, to improve gross margins for data-oriented solutions over time. But there's some places where it just doesn't make any damn sense to try and build out the complex algorithm that you're, you're trying to build out. Um, so I, I do think there will be a lot of just limitations and you know people who try and overstep um, how much they, they automate and that will, you know, return back to more of a human in the loop, um, a productive human in the loop approach to machine learning and AI versus the unproductive machine learning, uh, human in the loop AI, which, you know, is just tons of data labelers and people doing a lot of automated tasks on the back end of the solutions that we, we built and sold 10, 15 years ago. I remember as, Cooper and I, as, as kids would go on like Amazon mechanical Turk and like, that's pretty much AI back in the day. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me of how I always get told the, the, like the smartest people can explain really, really complex topics very easily, which kind of reminds me of like to do simple things requires like a lot of work. Soft, soft robotics is an example of like ro robots trying to pick up objects that um, pick up objects without realizing like, it might crush it when, when grabbing it. Um, but what, how long do you think it'll take for, for all this? Because is, is a really long time, like 30 years, a hundred years or thousands of years, because you have, but in, in the last 10 or 20 years, we've had just such exponential growth of, of just innovation in, in all of this. I mean, it depends on to what extent you're, you're talking. And I think a lot of it is, is I think the biggest problem for what I would, cons or, or the biggest barrier to what I would call, you know, mass adoption of productive a AI today is really the change management behind it and, and the, the, uh, the adoption and, and the politics and, and just the knowledge. There aren't that many, there aren't enough data scientists out there today. And to truly deploy effective AI machine learning solutions today requires a lot of you know human behavioral changes and uh, different expectations around job functions, and you know we have a 
pretty aging workforce right now that's still resistant to a lot of this this adoption. Um, and you have, you know, a couple of generations coming up really fast at the same time. So at some point, we're going to have this tipping point of, of retirement and, and um, you know, kind of baby boomers and Gen X, you know, kind of moving out of the workforce. And you're going to have really rapid adoption of what I would consider, um, you know, productive AI from generations of people who are, you know, born digitally native. Um, that I think that will ease the change management process a lot. If we're talking flying cars and you know chips, chips in our brains and everything else, I think we're I think we're a long ways off from that. Um, I am really interested in kind of you know some of the AR VR um, use cases that are popping up. Whether you you know there's some AI I guess around those. Um, but I think it's interesting. You know, with there's no way that work travel will be what it was pre-COVID. Um, so have to believe that VR is going to play a, a more, or AR VR is going to play a much more prominent role in, in the, the business landscape in the not too distant future. Um, I think there'll be a lot of overstepping and, and you know, painful uh, learning curves along the way where we'll probably like touch the third rail in a couple of places and, and jump back. And then there'll probably be a few things that we didn't expect and, and we'll jump over the third rail and be hugely successful. I'm not quite sure where those will be yet, but um, I'm excited. I hope they'll be in productive areas like healthcare. Well, your, your pessimism about flying cars is, is unfortunate, but <laughs> you, you remind me of the Peter Thiel quote. We thought we were going to get flying cars and we got hundred <laughs> character tweets or something like that. Um, Painfully but- accurate. <laughs> yeah, well, sw- switching gears a little bit, when I asked you earlier how things have changed in AI in the last few years, you mentioned bias and racism, sexism, ageism uh, within algorithms. Um, so obviously, this is an issue that's gaining attention um, in the world, even outside of AI. And just for our listeners, bias appears in AI models when the training model, the training data is skewed in some way, or the people who are training it are skewed in some way. Um, and I, I think you mentioned this example uh, about hiring algorithms, but for example, Amazon had a hiring algorithm with men's resumes overrepresented in the training data. And later they found the program was pretty significantly sexist. So they stopped using it. Or there was an MIT researcher who found that facial recognition systems tend to have higher error rates with women and minorities. And that could definitely lead to false accusations or even imprisonment. So my question for you is, how do you think about bias and AI models and do you know of any interesting methods to combat this? And finally, how do you think about it when you're investing? I'm trying to make this as general as, as possible, but uh, I, I sort of alluded to this earlier. The, the use case of um, you know, white men overperforming in, in AI algorithms, for example, for, for job hires is like, you know, it's, it's the most predictable outcome of poor data science <laughs> because like, sure. if, <laughs> like if, if you take past performance and, and like how the, the business world and certain, you know, job functions have traditionally been staffed and who your best performers were, odds are there's a lot of white men there. <laughs> and if you use that as the, you know, the template moving forward for how you create an algorithm, you're just going to have an algorithm that produces the, 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 same, the same type of output, probably at a you know, mathematically similar uh, outcome as your, your previous hiring, if not even worse. 
Um, so what we look for is, to be honest, it, it, it's not it's not rocket science, but there is AI, machine learning, data science, data handling processes that are scalable, and there are those that that aren't. And it can be hard to get it right, and you have to do some tweaking with your data set um, around like introducing more data uh, versus not versus, uh, and you have to introduce you know potentially noisy data because noise is sometimes good uh, to help build your build, build your algorithms out, um, but you can also overdo it. So there's just a number of like kind of classic, you know, statistic, statistical and, um, you know, data science uh, procedures that just need to be taken. And there aren't enough, um, you know, qualified uh, data scientists out there to handle this in some of these really important categories. So taking the, going back to the use case of hiring, it, we're, we're investing in a company that, that, that does some of this um, company called Knockery up in, in Toronto. And, you know, very, simply um, their data set was from a very broad set of people, wide ranging, um, not, you know, not just white men who, you know, happen to perform well in a, you know, limited uh, competitive environment previously. Um, the labelers of the data to, that went into informing the algorithm were a, wide swath of people from various backgrounds um, and, you know, some uh, technology supporting what they were doing. Um, not, um, not just, you know, certain races or, or, or age groups, which tends to happen, honestly, when you do your data labeling in Poland or uh, in the Philippines or in, in, in Colombia, you end up with like a very uh, homogenous group of, of people even if they're different than white men. Um, so you really do need to have like a, a diverse set of data labelers if you're gonna do it you know, with, with human intervention. And that ultimately goes into how you, you know, produce your first algorithms. Then over time, you still need to monitor um, the output uh, of the algorithms to see if you're realizing bias or, or drift both in the data and in your and in your algorithm uh, over time, so you repetitively um, introduce new noise or or reduce um, you know potentially you know poisoning factors um, that are going into your into your data set and into your algorithms. Um, and this is again using the example of of hiring, which is a massively important one and complicated one, um, but that process holds true across. Um, lots of different use cases and what the, the, the right, you know, the right type of algorithm to use and, and how much data to, you know, use or, or noise to introduce into, uh, into a data set. These, these are all kind of the, the art of, of data science that varies use case by use case, company by company, industry by industry, um, but are just super important. And that's what we look for when we invest is somebody or, you know, a team of people who, at their core, understand the importance of these concepts and can either do it in-house with their own human resources or are informed enough to bring in the right technology to help them uh, uh, automate uh, a lot of that process um, to ensure they get it right 
uh, from the beginning. And to us, that's the AI, that's the machine learning that will scale five or 10 years out and not be the ones that are breaking in two and three years. You have to go back in and re-architect everything because you're getting bad, bad performance, bad outcomes. We've referenced this a little bit throughout, you know, killer robots. The, uh, the existential risks around AI are obviously gaining attention. They've always been front of mind for a lot of people, but now that AI is so present in our world, um, obviously I'm not referring to death robots like the Terminator or something. I'm referring to more quiet risks like unbounded AI going to extreme lengths to accomplish some goal. So, you know, a classic uh, sci-fi example would be AI tasked with reducing global warming and giving lots of power and it decides that the most efficient route is kill all humans or something. Or a more believable example would maybe be an autonomous fire truck, which really wants to put out a fire and it ends up like drowning someone in the basement or something. Um, so my question for you is, how do you view existential risk as related to AI? And is it something you consider when you're looking at investments? It is um, definitely... Um, Every now and then we look at a deal where where one of us will will say um, this is really interesting. I hope it never exists. And I think wow. you're, <laughs> I, I think you're you're hitting on some of those. And, you know, I think the all these use cases are are like spot on, Cooper. I mean, they're they're the ones that get the front page noise um, and are they're very visible, right? I mean, as a, as a culture, as as people were afraid of. <laughs> you know, uh, violence and, and war and, and, you know, death and, um, yeah, it's scary. Um, what I'm honestly more afraid of now is that I think in many ways we're in a, we're in a digital cold war, um, you know, back in, you know, the two thousands, um, cyber war, uh, offensive cyber war became a very real thing. Um, you know, the U.S. is certainly um, a participant in that, and so are our allies and our our quote unquote enemies. Um, so, you know, not I was a history major uh, in in college. Um, you know, hence whole history, and then and then and then you know, trying to be a lawyer thing, which is occasionally useful. Um, and one of the things I learned about in history course was mutually assured destruction. And I think we're in a data privacy um, and just digital cold war at the moment where you know, I hate to say it, but I've sort of accepted that my data is everywhere. And if Russia wants to steal all my money or turn off, you know, all of our lights in, in lower Manhattan, they can do that any moment they want. Um, I hope they don't. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the, the scary real use case to, to me today. And conversely, you know, one of the things that I'm super excited about, um, and I think we're still just seeing the early um, kind of early innings of this is uh, data science, AI, machine learning around cybersecurity. Uh, and there are so many interesting applications out there. It's one of those worlds that's a, a little bit hard to um, share all the things that we've seen. Sometimes it's highly proprietary, but it's been eye-opening to me to learn, you know, how information spreads and who's spreading it, and um, the the mechanisms and, and tools that are evolving to help us at least have a, a fighting chance of understanding um, 
where, where our information is coming from and how to better contextualize it um, for you know, the average person to understand and, and make use of. Because um, right now it's, it runs pretty rampant and, and it's truly fracturing and polarizing our, our society. So not as glamorous as, as you know, the firefighting uh, AI robot, um, but it's a very real world concern that I think doesn't get enough attention today. To wrap things up, Nick, if you could do anything outside of tech or data science, what would it be? I play shortstop for the Red Sox. <laughs> Such a quick answer. <laughs> yeah, no brainer. Uh, unfortunately, that that uh, <laughs> the the opposite came true. So I, I've kind of always said that if if I if I couldn't play shortstop for the Red Sox, which you know at twenty two coming out of Brandeis with a you know two eighty batting average was was pretty pretty clear. Um, you know, I'd want to be doing what I do today. Uh, otherwise, I, I'd be I'd be in education somewhere. Um, that's my that's my thing, you know, before I, when I had my, um, oh shit moment at 22 that I really did not want to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to my former teachers and guidance counselors and, and thought really hard about going into, into the uh, education world. Um, I'm glad I went this way. Um, cause I think, um, I've just gotten such a different perspective from technology and, um, you know, when, when differential ventures, uh, has its, 10 or 15 X return on fund one fund two. Um, and I can do a little more philanthropic work. It'll probably be around education and technology and just getting access to, um, more people. Education is just such a, you know, it, it's the gatekeeper in, in the U S and, and in the world. Um, and I think it will be for the foreseeable future. And I think more people need to have more access to it in a, a much more balanced way. I I've been a, recipient of um, be, being an otherwise uh, not the most advantageous uh, childhood and, and kid. You know, I didn't grow up with much money, uh, you know, grew up mostly with a single mother and my grandparents. Um, you know, so I certainly didn't have a ton of, you know, <laughs> a ton of uh, white collar experience to point to as, as a kid. And I was, you know, thought I'd be a cop or a firefighter or something. Um, uh, you know, I've still had the benefit of, of, the fact that I'm a, you know, white male who has a you know brain that works okay, and I could hit a baseball really well when I was when I was 17, 18 years old, and if not for those things, um, th those allowed me a lot of um, forgiveness in my own career because I was an okay student. Uh, you know, I pr preferred to play baseball, <laughs> but through 22, like who wouldn't uh, if you had the option? Not that I was a bad student, I just wasn't a great student. It wasn't until after I was done, you know, playing baseball and after college that I became a really good student. I realized my body, you know, was done <laughs> giving me what it could. And it's time to use the brain, and I just got super competitive and and into it. But not everybody gets that chance, you know. I I got it because of my network and and people I met along the way, and um, you know, kind of had the advantage of my skin color. And um, you know, I think. Uh, I can't, I can't do my job with a straight face without acknowledging that and somehow would love to level that playing field a little bit more. Nick, this was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. We, uh, we really enjoyed listening to, to your thoughts on the industry. Appreciate the, uh, the insight, Nick. Thank you. Thanks guys. <laughs>